Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and my guest today is Hugh Facey, OBE, Chairman of Gripple and also of the Glide Group. You can find Gripple on Twitter at Gripple Limited. That's at G-R-I-P-P-L-E-L-T-D. Hugh, welcome. Thank you. You, you may not want to make a noise about it, but you are a Yorkshire, if not national, institution. Management Today ran an article on you entitled, Is Hugh Facey Britain's Best Boss? Your career started at Tinsley Wire. You set out on your own with a state wire in 1984 and then sold it five years later to fund Gripple, the wire connector that you invented. 30 years on, the Glide Group that you chair is now some thousand strong and Gripple is known throughout the UK manufacturing sector as a pace setter. You're a hugely successful exporter with offices in 14 countries. Can we start with your business principles because it strikes me that you've put a lot of thought into them. Yes, um, I don't have a lot of thought. It's uh, a basic principle that I've always believed in that uh, you should treat everybody as you would like to be treated and we particularly think that or we, treat, we use that as a principle for our staff and all the staff that work for us all around the world. And you've also said culture should be the top priority of every business. Everyone should have the opportunity to grow and develop. Um, everyone should share in the profits of the business. Um, I love those principles, but, but how did you come by them? Is there some particular route uh, of development that you took? Well, there are two questions there. The one's principles, the other one's um, sharing in the, in the profits. If I go back to the, first, to the second one, um, when we established Estate Wire, uh, I had 50% of the business. I bought my partners out after uh, three years, so I had 100% of the business. And when we sold it in 1989 uh, to fund the Gripple business, which was innovative and needed a lot of capital investment, I was going to get all the profits. And I didn't think that was right. Everybody else had contributed to the success of Estate Wire in that five years and I felt that uh, everybody should get something from it. So part of the deal that we did was that the company that bought it gave 10% of the proceeds as a golden hello to the staff who remained at Estate Wire. So that's the first one and I'll explain how we move that on when we uh, uh, established Gripple but the second question you asked was how do you do the principles and I'm not a believer that you would deliver hand principles down to me the principles should come from your staff saying this is what we believe in so if you go around our three factories here in uh, in Sheffield or, or our factories elsewhere in the world you will see the values that the people of the staff there have chosen as their values and it's quite funny um, but in the gunworks and a lot of them are very similar you know you'd expect them to be because of the way the business is uh, but one of them in the gunworks says challenge innovation and one of them in the riverside factory says challenge innovation but it's the other way other way up it's upside down and it's that sort of thing that is part of the business but humor 
is also a big part of it. Uh, if you don't have humour, then business can be very, very dry and boring. And we all take great pleasure in taking the Michael out of each other and other people. So it, it's, it's um, another one of the values. But the values are the values of the people, not my values passed down and said, this is what you operate on. Right. Um, so you, you picked out Challenge Innovation, so perhaps we could move on to that. The Gripple Connector itself has undergone multiple iterations, but since its invention we've had suspension systems for building services. You've spun off Loadhog, manufacturer of returnable transit packaging solutions. When you wanted to automate production, you didn't buy in machines from Germany or China, but created your own automation business. Your product line includes acoustic baffles, seismic restraints and anchors for geosynthetic matting. You target that 25% of sales should arise from products not available five years ago. How do you manage to innovate at such a rate year in, year out? Uh, well, we employ a lot of development engineers, but it's not just we have an idea and we'll, we'll make it. All our salespeople are encouraged, motivated, pushed to talk to their customers and find out what they do, what they want, but also particularly to ask what problems do they have. And once they've identified a problem, then it comes back to the ideas and innovation department and it says, can we find a way of improving this, eliminating it, making it better? Um, and a classic example is we made a gripple with a loop on the end, with a ferrule loop on the end, uh, with metre, two metre, three metre, five metre lengths of wire that replaced threaded rod. We sold it for a lot more than the cost of threaded rod, but a builder who's hanging some heating or some ventilation or air conditioning, he had to take the, get the threaded rod there, which was heavy, weighed a lot in its own right. He had to cut it to the right length he then had to put nuts on to fasten it to the ceiling and to put nuts on to fasten it to the thing he was going to hang whether it was the air conditioning or whatever and our system was six times quicker so it's constantly looking at customers problems and finding a solution and that's where all our ideas come from right and um, so the, the sales force is the leading edge of your um development engineering team really. Yeah, yeah, they've got, they've got to find them. So, um, could we discuss an area now that I find really exciting, em employee ownership. So since 2004, it's been mandatory for new employees to buy shares in Gripple. And in uh, 2011, you set up a company limited by guarantee, Glide, and you and your vice chairman were in the process of gifting your personal shares to Glide, so that by 2021, the group will be owned entirely by future generations of employees. Um, your employees receive share dividends and are able to trade shares quarterly. You've constructed Glide so that it can never be sold. What's the thinking behind transferring what must be the majority of your personal wealth to your employees? Uh, just make one correction. Okay. Roger and I are donating half our shares, Right. not all our shares and I'm putting shares into a, uh, a charitable trust called the Faithy Foundation as well. Uh, Glide was a, a concept that 
I, well, it was created by my accountant, external accountant, our auditors, and a, a legal friend in London who I met through the Employee Ownership Association. It's unique in that most employee-owned businesses are trust-owned, which means that it's a trust that owns it, not the people. And having had a state wire and the staff not getting, well, getting some money when I sold it, but not participating in it, I decided straight away to make the opportunity for staff, there are only 17 of us in Gripple, to buy the shares. Out of the 17, 13 bought shares. I wish, looking back, I'd made it mandatory then, but I didn't, so we all make mistakes. But, as you said, in 19, was it 19, no, 2004, yeah. um, we made it mandatory, and that wasn't me, it was everybody voted on it and said, yes, we've got to do this. Glide was, I, 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 through the Employee Ownership Association, I'd met a number of people who had very generously um, sold their businesses to staff for half the price. What we were doing was the opposite. We were giving it to them, but it meant that we weren't burdening the business with debt because to sell the business to a trust for half, they have to borrow the money and then there's interest on it. And a lot of, not a lot, a number of those businesses have suffered because that hasn't worked. The debt has been too much. Mm. So what we've done is progressively over 10 years, and I did it over, or we did it over 10 years because I didn't want to make a mess of it. And I thought if after three years it's not working, we'll stop. You know, it wasn't, mm. uh, it was a commitment, but it wasn't a, a legal commitment. Um, what has been amazing is that the, we set up a, a board for Glide so that every part of the business from France, from Japan, from India, America and the factories here, they all have representatives on the Glide board. And the Glide board takes the dividends that it gets from the shares that have been given to them and this year it will be nearly half a million quid. But they use that for helping in areas that they want to help, but giving money to each representative to use it for the staff in their factories or their offices. And it's been amazing how they've grown. It's, it's, it's given them a chance to challenge the managing directors. I mean, what is interesting is that people say, well, they won't. They're not going to say to Ed Stubbs, who was the MD of Gripple, why did you do this, you know, when they work for him? So they very cleverly, there are five businesses in Glide, they very cleverly meet the night before, and somebody from one of the other businesses asks the googly question, which is great, but they do ask serious questions. And what's really good is the MDs take the question seriously as well. Yeah. That, you know, they're fully engaged with Glide and what Glide's about. So um, it's been really good. What is interesting is that someone who bought some shares in 1994, the value of those shares has gone up over 200 times. Right. It's absolutely amazing. And we've yeah. got staff who, you know, I can think of one member of staff, won't name him, but he bought shares every year. And he, last quarter, sold £20,000 of the shares. And I said to him, I said, why are you selling that? And he said, well, don't you remember I sold £20,000 three years ago? And I said, oh no, I'm sorry, I forgot. 
He said, well, that was for my daughter's wedding and it paid for it. He said, this is for the other daughter. He says, but shares I've got left are still worth more than when I started. Yeah, oh, that's incredible. That's terrific. Uh, an example of staff owning shares, the difference it makes is I was coming through the warehouse one day. It was just before the annual general meeting. They'd all had their accounts. And uh, this warehouse man said to me, now the new says, I told my missus that these here shares were going to pay off his mortgage. And I said, oh yeah, good. Um, how big's your mortgage? He said, it's 45,000 pounds and it were an effing big mortgage when I took it out. So I said, yeah, I bet it was, Phil. And I thought, I know how many shares he's got roughly. So I said, um, I think you've got about 12,000 shares. I've got 12,860. He says, and I said, well, that must be nearly worth your mortgage. He said, it's 42,820. Can you get your effing finger out? <laughs> and it's that sort of thing that the humour, but the seriousness, the understanding, and, you know, this gentleman is going to retire uh, next year, uh, he'll be 60, and, um, you know, he'll have a nice pot of money uh, for his retirement, he'll get dividends on it, and hopefully the capital growth will continue. So it's, 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 it's employee ownership, but it's them actually owning the shares. Yeah. And it's amazing how many do actually trade, you know. We trade them every quarter now, we value the shares at 30 times the dividend stream and we have to pay a third of post-tax profits in dividends. So it's like a 10 times PE and they get a chance to trade them every quarter. And last quarter we actually had, we had 380,000 pounds worth of shares sold and there were over 500,000 pounds of the shares bought. Right. So. You know, the trading window, sometimes it can be more buyers than sellers. I think we've only ever had twice when it's been more sellers than buyers. And it was because somebody was selling, you know, a big chunk. What is interesting is that when we had a, a, a rough time in 1996, because a major customer in America stopped buying from us overnight and we actually lost money, it's the only year we've lost money. I thought, oh, it's going to be a real tough AGM. And, and it wasn't, and what was amazing was they bought more shares because they believed in the business. Yeah, yeah, no, that's inspiring. Now, your challenge to business orthodoxy doesn't stop with employee ownership though, does it? So, Gripple famously has no buying department, no HR department, though you have people in culture, no job descriptions, no R&D department, you have ideas and innovation and Glide is structured so that it can never be run by accountants. Why is it you have such a different take on business from so many other companies? I don't know. I mean, what do you want a buying department for? If you trust your people, yeah. they know what they want, and they'll go and buy it. All buying departments do is try to get the lowest price. And they spend more, you spend more time on a buying department and they screw the business up because they buy something that isn't right and isn't good. Well, I'm amazed at how our people, when they're buying something, really negotiate hard. Mm. You know, they, they know what they're talking about, and they know what they want, and they know what's right for the business. Yeah. Um, in terms of HR, HR is an absolute disaster. They think they run the business, think they own the business, they think they control the people. If you're recruiting somebody, the person who needs to make the decision is the person who's going to work for. They're going to work for. You get I mean, my daughter works for Heinz. 
and she'll be suddenly told, oh, so and so, this is your new um, person who's going to do such and such, or this is your person who's going to do such and such, and she's never seen them. It's absolutely ludicrous. So we have people and culture, and we have a very strong people and culture department. There's, a, there's about six or seven of them now, uh, and it's about training. It's about the culture, the appraisals, and everybody's appraised against the scribble spirit, which is you know, basically what we're about. Yeah. Um, job descriptions, oh, they are the worst thing. Um, they stop people doing things. That's not my job. It doesn't say that I'm supposed to do that. And because we don't have job descriptions, people move. They actually just change what they're doing, and you find they've picked something up that the business needs to be done, and we never identify it. And no job description will pick it up. So I think it's one of the best things we've done, is, is not having job descriptions. And um, having read Andrew Davis's excellent account of Gripple, it's clear that the first thing you did when you founded the business was to surround yourself with highly capable people. So you yeah, but Andy, Andy wrote that. It was him who wrote that. <laughs> was he one of them? He was the first. <laughs> but the original board was Roger Hall, who's now your vice chairman, John McGee, formerly MD of Presto Tools, yep. and John Heselgrave, an expert in recruitment and training. So was that luck or, or good management? Is that what it's you uh, the friends I made through Junior Chamber. Right. Um, they just happened to be highly capable people. They were people I knew um, and who got abilities. You know, John was engineering background, Roger was financial background, uh, John Heselgrave was a good guy as well. So it was, I was lucky. I don't know why I was lucky. I was just, uh, they said yes, they'd come and join us and they did. And we've mentioned Gripple Automation, but there are other examples of uh, vertical in integration within Clyde, aren't there? You, you acquired shares in PMS die casting, yep. supplier of the housings for the Gripple Connector in 2002. You helped them grow, then you created the business Go Tools and then laser scanning out of them. What was, what was the thinking behind those acquisitions? Um, they, were, they aren't acquisitions, they're still independent companies. But PMS was a guy, Gordon Panther, who just started, or taken over his father's business, which was a very small die caster. And we wanted to move our die casting from the Midlands, where it was being made, further north. And we started with Gordon and we took a percentage of the shares, one to provide him with equity, but two to give us security and give him security. Mm. Um, and we progressively have grown to where we probably have 48%, I think. But that business has grown out of all recognition as well. You know, it's, uh, it's got, I don't know how many die-casting machines, but something like 30 die-casting machines from the two or three he had. And Go Tools was a, is a remarkable business. It's run by a guy who, um, who was an engineer for PMS and said, I want to start my own business. And we said, okay, let's do it. You know, and off he's gone and he's running a fantastic tool making business with all the latest machines. Well, the thing you've got to do is invest in a business. So many businesses look at the bottom line and not the top, not the top line and the investment. If you invest in a business, you will make money. Yeah. If you don't invest, you go down the drain. And we've just seen today, Thomas Cook's crashing, you know, and it's because they didn't change. They didn't. They just stood with where they were. You've got to keep investing. Yeah. 
So Hugh, what's, what's been your proudest achievement in business? Proud's a deadly sin. <laughs> what am I to take from that? <laughs> well, I'm not allowed to be proud. <laughs> okay. Um, the greatest collective achievement of Gripple then? It's the people. Yeah. Without a doubt. Um, it's their willingness to work together to support each other. The work they do, I mean, the amazing what they do for charities. Yeah. The number of charities that um, we support, you know, and different people doing this and doing that and, you know, and other things. I mean, we, we spend, well, we gift 1% of our budget of profit uh, to charities and we've got a charity committee um, and none of the board are allowed to sit on it. Uh, it's all, you know, staff from various parts of the business and we send money to Australia, oh, sorry, to Europe and to America, uh, to the main businesses there to help them and their charity support. So the charity thing is a good one as well. Yeah. So the way the Gripple spirit is your is your greatest achievement. Yeah. Could we talk now a little bit about your own personal development? Because there was some kind of uh, experiences early on in your career, weren't there, that, that really were formative for you? Yeah. You went. You went to Canada at quite a, an early age, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, I made a bog of my O levels. Right. Um, I made a bog of my A levels, so I finished up at Sheffield Tech instead of Salford College of Advanced Technology, where I was supposed to be going. And if I'd have gone there, I'd have probably been in IT, and I might have been Google or something like that. But uh, no, I finished up in Sheffield, making things. Yeah, I uh, got a job with Tinsley Wire. They were a really good company. Um, we employed about 800 people here in Sheffield uh, on the site which is now IKEA um, because they got taken over by vulture capitalists and you'll do a job, they strip it out and screw it up and kill the business. And I'm glad that we actually now employ more people than, than they did, you know, that's, which is a real pleasure for me. Um, when I was there at Tinsley, I went to Institute of Marketing course in, in Sheffield at the tech and one of the guys had done a entered a competition called the Overseas Travel Award Scheme run by the Junior Chamber of Commerce and I got our personnel person because I used to call them in those days personnel at uh, Tinsley to find out about it and I entered the competition the following year um, and I won the Yorkshire uh, the Sheffield competition then the Yorkshire one then the national one and finished up going to Canada for six months to learn about North American advanced manufacturing techniques and the like. When I got there, I worked for a wire company, which was great, uh, but I spent the whole six months putting in new systems for them because our systems at Tinsley were a lot better than theirs. Uh, but I suppose the point that, I'm, that it makes is that it, may, it helped me grow. Mm. Um, I'd always been and not been very good academically and therefore I was never thought greatly about my ability and I think this made me realise that actually I wasn't quite as thick as I thought I was but I had to at the end of the trip uh, speak to 400 people at the junior chamber, Toronto Junior Chamber annual dinner you know and it was uh, it's those sort of things that help you grow and give you confidence and, and give you belief in yourself I mean, they, the, the, the people I stayed with, who were a lovely couple, they were fantastic to me. 
they kept saying, you've got to stop in Canada, you've got to stop in Canada. You know, it, it's, it's a wonderful, they moved from Birmingham and they said it's a wonderful, and he'd done very, very well. But I always kept thinking, if you can do it, you can do it anywhere. Yeah. If you've got what it takes, you can do it anywhere. So I came back home, I went back to Tinsley, went out on the road for a year. We had a factory in the northeast, uh, up in Tomado, up in County Durham, and uh, it was a mess. But they had me in and said, we want you to go out and be managing director, of the, or general manager, not manager, general manager of this business. And it was in a mess. It had a turnover of 360,000, had lost 180,000 the year before. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm on my way out. But then I thought, well, actually, I could probably learn more from doing this than um, I can from uh, being a rep, you know, mm. basically. Uh, so I went up, we got a great team of people. People I didn't know any of them. You know, they were all, they were all young like me. And uh, we turned the business round within 18 months and we were making money. I mean, the lessons I learned was uh, the group MD, he used to come up and see me every week try and help me and teach me and coach me how to do it and over time he'd ring me probably most days and then after a while he would ring me once a month because you know we got the business uh, running the right way uh, of those still in contact with quite a few of those people and they, they, were, a, they were a great team I mean I took a guy on uh, and paid him more than me because he was a specialist in plastic injection molding and I knew nothing about it so I took him on, and it's all right, because then I got an increase higher than his. <laughs> so, so once you got the calendar under your belt, you kind of actively seek out those opportunities then, or actively say yes to those opportunities I say yes. to stretch I didn't see, yourself. I didn't, yes, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't seek out the tomato one, because we thought we were, you know, it, was, yeah. it was a disaster. Uh, after that, I came back as group sales and marketing director. But the other thing that changed me up, up in the northeast was we... As I say, I went to Canada on a junior chamber scholarship mm. and I joined Sheffield Junior Chamber, then moved to the Northeast and Teesside Junior Chamber was uh, struggling. It had only got about 17 members. So I stood as president about two years after we got up there and uh, we drove the business to the late 90s, you know, 95, 96 members in three years. Uh, and it's that enthusiasm know drive but that gave me confidence and it gave me confidence to go on and be uh, national president in 1979 so it, it, it's it's pushing things but also seeing opportunities and, and, and grabbing them yeah yeah uh, it's also doing daft things the, the junior chamber conferences uh, there's a world conference and they bid for the world conference two years ahead you know two or three cities bid yes uh, but this year in 1979 there was only Berlin bidding so it was going to be boring there wasn't been any competition yeah. and so uh, we decided we'd do a mock bid for Dern Valley uh, we spoke to the world president and said oh, is it okay if we do this mock bid you know made make up one and we put on the most crazy bid um, which after Germany done the most uh, uh, fantastic presentation that Berlin had um, with quadraphonic you know four cameras and uh, it, it, you know, the, the choir, a fabulous choir that was singing and I thought oh dear I've dropped the biggest clagger of my life here putting this idea up but 
because of the humour that was in our presentation and it was being translated into French and German and Japanese uh, or oh, Spanish as well so there were four, van four it took nearly twice as long as it should for the presentation because they were translating it and then you got the French laughing and the German laughing and the Portuguese laughing yeah, it was just and, and it actually was probably uh, one of the best days of my life but it's it's gambling as well, you know, yeah. it's putting your head on the block. Being prepared to take it, a risk and be wrong. Take the risk and could be wrong, but it could be right as well. So here we are, you're, you're, I think I'm right in saying you're 73 now? You are correct. And, and I was you, the first person who's guessed it right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and you're showing no signs of uh, retirement. How do, you, how do you look after yourself? I know you're a big cricket fan. Yeah, I love cricket. I uh, love rugby. Don't do any exercise. Right. My doctor said to me, when I went to see my doc new doctor, he said, what exercise do you take? And I said, I don't take any. And he said, why? I said, it's not good for you. And he said, why? I said, well, I have a friend down a tennis court, a friend down a squash court. Uh, another friend's broken his ankle playing golf just last month. Another one nearly drowned rowing. It's just not good for you. And I don't think the doctor knew whether I was taking the Michael or not. And uh, so he did all the usual things, the blood pressure. He took my blood pressure and I said, what's the, what is it? He said, it's 121 over 80. I said, was it any good? He said, it doesn't get any better than that. No, and I was telling a friend in the pub that night, or a group of friends in the pub that night about this. And this friend said, well, of course, you don't have blood pressure. You're just a carrier. You give it other people. <laughs> so humor's one of the things that keeps, yeah. me, keeps me alive. I, I couldn't not work because it's what my, what, what my, is in my you know, metabolism, it's my, my driver. You know, yeah. the brain's always working, I'm always thinking, you know. At some point I'll have to stop, but not till I'm 117. <laughs> so, so, so what advice would you give to uh, young uh, managers, leaders starting, business leaders starting out today? Believe in yourself believe in other people, trust other people, have a sense of humour, get on with it. And is, is there any kind of um, book, podcast, video that you might recommend to them? I'm not a great reader. I've read your book, <laughs> but I'm not a great reader. Um, the, the one book I remember, it's a long, long time ago, and I can't remember who wrote it. Uh, it was somebody who, who, who ran Avis or Hertz, one of the two. and. And one of the things he, that I did, that he said in there, he said, don't have any car parking places for managing director, chairman, all that sort of stuff. For visitors, yes, but not for anybody else. Because if you're that important, you ought to be there first. <laughs> Which I thought was a good line. Um, Sorry, I'm not a great reader. <laughs> don't, have, don't have time. Uh, Hugh, it's been a great pleasure interviewing you and uh, I wish I had known about the state wire in 1984 because I would have applied for a job. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this edition of the Compassionate Leadership Interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership the book at www.compassionate-leadership.co.uk or on Amazon. If you'd like to support the show financially just search for Chris Whited on patreon.com and this show was recorded at Glide in Sheffield and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records.